Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No without struggle, no one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle, no one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am Esti Dinor I am delighted to have in the studio with me for this first time in more than three years an actual live guest and she is Candace Fuchigane She is professor of English at the University of Hawaii. She is a Japanese settler ally who stands for the protection la- of lands and waters in Hawaii while supporting Hawaiian political independence. In 2020, she was awarded the Engaged Scholar Award by the Association for Asian American Studies. She has published Mapping Ab- Abundance for a Planetary Future, Kanaka Maoli and Clinic critical settler cartographers for a changing earth. She will be giving the keynote and address at the Gaffis Symposium 2023, Living the Land, Global and Local Transformation, which is happening right here at the UW-Madison. And uh, Candace, such a delight to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. And the story that you tell about Hawaii, I think, is not maybe as well known as others, but, but the story itself is so well known, isn't it? It happened in so many other places around the world. So um, let's start with um, what, what did American occupation look like right away and what does it still look like now? You are just kind of incredible at picking up on the language of occupation. So uh, many of the activists argue that um, it's more so occupation than settler colonialism. Um, and that um, that conversation um, has been a big part of Hawaiian movements for um, land, breath, and sovereignty. Um, and there's a wonderful book called A Nation Rising, Um, that's edited by Noelani Gujir Kaupua, uh, Ikai Kahasi, and Aaron Kahunavai Wright. And it includes essays by different authors talking about different aspects of occupation in Hawaii. And so um, what we see in Hawaii is, you know, I've talked about this in my work on Asian settler colonialism, is that after the overthrow, um, what the territorial government tried to do was to was to buy Kanakamali consent by giving uh, Kanakamali prominent roles in Let government. Let me just, uh, yeah. just clarify. Kanakamali, yes. that's the name of the, for the Hawaiian people, correct? For the correct? Hawaiian yeah. people, yes, okay. yes, yes. Go ahead. Kanakamali, um, sometimes Kanaka Oivi, which means the bones, um, the true bones that have gone back to the land. 
Um, the ancestors. The ancestors, yes. And the term Kulaivi is uh, the word for a national land base. And so um, a lot of Kanakamali were given prominent positions in government, in the Republican government. Um, with the rise of the plantations and uh, the rise of Japanese um, to politics. So, you know, with World War II, a lot of Japanese entered into the political arena um, through, the, uh, through the military, through the 442nd um, infant, uh, and the 100th Infantry Battalion. And as um, veterans, they received uh, educations on the GI Bill. So uh, they became lawyers and politicians. And so there was a great turnover of land with the rise of the Democratic Party, which was largely made up of Japanese Americans. And so, um, and and you will, and many of you know Danny Noe as the senior senator in Congress, and he is just one example of that rise to political power. Today, when we look at the legislature, forty percent of the legislature is made up of Japanese Americans, mm-hmm. and um, tw- although they make up only twenty percent of the general population, Hawaiians are twenty percent of the general population, but make up only ten percent of the legislature. Whites are 25% of the general population and 25% of the legislature, which is kind of what you want to see, you know, a balance between the population and representation in government. But Hawaiians, you can see, are very underrepresented, and Asians are overrepresented, and that's why we talk about Asian settler colonialism. And what we're saying is that Asians support the U.S. as a settler state. Um, They see their interests align with the U.S. settler state that occupies Hawaii. And as people who have control of government, and actually even the educational system is dominated by Japanese teachers. Hmm. 45%, I think, of teachers are Japanese-American. So as a Japanese um, settler, uh, I'm actually fourth generation in Hawaii. Um, I worked with Honanike Trask to talk about What is Asian settler colonialism in Hawaii, and what does it look like? Of course, it is the U.S. as the occupying state, but a lot of what's happening is facilitated by Japanese Americans. So that's kind of a brief uh, encapsulation of the history that we see in Hawaii. Uh That is so interesting. I wasn't aware that um, Japanese also... Prominent, nor was I aware really that Hawaiians are a minority on their own islands, but also when you talk about the the Japanese in uh, government, I think of Fujimori or Fujimori, depending yeah. on yeah. <laughs> you know who was yeah. the president of Peru, and his right. his daughter is um, still a a strong, um, very right wing. Uh, power in the country. But let's talk about some of the manifestations of um, the occupation Mm -hmm. uh, through militarization, legal system, land seizures. Uh, I know that that's a lot, and we could probably talk for the rest of the hour just about that. But if you can give us maybe one or two examples for each of these uh, so that we understand... um, what it means for, for the indigenous people of Hawaii to live under um, these regimes, I suppose, the American regime and the Japanese regime. 
Yes. So under militarization, one of the biggest issues we're facing right now is the contamination of our drinking water by jet fuel tank, a jet fuel that has leaked into our aquifer. Um, And these jet fuel tanks are for the Navy's jet fuel tanks. (coughs) Excuse me. And so we are becoming like Flint, Michigan. And people don't think about Hawaii and the contamination of water. We have, you know, people have this idea of Hawaii as being a paradise where things are clean and pristine. But no, our aquifers are being poisoned by PFAS chemicals, actually, that have leaked from these. um, There are 20 10 million gallon tanks. So that's uh, 200 uh, million is it 200 million gallons of jet fuel that are buried underground oh. in Hawaii at at Red Hill? And the Navy uses the gravity to pull that jet fuel, and they fuel all of the jets that are used in the RIMPAC exercises, so the international exercises in um, Pacific waters are fueled by that jet fuel. And so in 20... Uh, 2021, there was a massive leak of 19,000 gallons of jet fuel that ended up in the drinking water for 93,000 people. And so people were horrified that the you could actually go into, and they, they, they went into the homes of military families. When you stepped into the homes, you could it smelled like a gas station. And you could smell the gas in the water. And yet the military denied that the water was contaminated. Um, There was so much uh, difficulty in getting accurate readings of the contamination because the military would change the figures or would say they had lost samples. And it turned out that the water was indeed contaminated. So there's a lawsuit by the families against the military. Um, and the military has actually balked at emptying the jet fuel tanks. And um, there had been a lawsuit against the um, U.S. Navy, uh, which gave the military 20 years to rectify the situation. Mm. Oh. And then when the when contamination happened, they were given five years to rectify the situation. Five years of our waters being contaminated. The Board of Water Supply has had to shut down five wells of water affecting 20% of the population on Oahu. So on Oahu, just to give you a picture, there's 1.4 million people in Hawaii and about 900,000 live on the island of Oahu. So 20% of the population is impacted by this water, uh, uh, this severe crisis to our water. Um, And it's just kind of uh, mind-blowing that um, the military is refusing to empty out those tanks. There are still 106 million gallons of jet fuel in those tanks at this time. Uh, We've had congressional leaders step in, and what the Navy has said is they cannot empty the tanks because of the condition that the tanks are in. It doesn't make very much sense. No, it it makes you even more worried, right? Exactly, and uh, the military uses the phrase national security that they need to keep the fuel in place for national security, even though it has so severely impacted 93,000. And and actually, that's, I think, a lowball estimate because they're finding that the contamination is spreading. And if it has affected one well, it could spread to the other wells, uh, too. 
that's just one example of militarization. Um, and the second would be like uh, the the struggle, as many people have seen globally, the struggle of Kanaka Maoli and their allies to protect the sacred mountain, Mauna Wakea, from the construction of the 30-meter telescope. And again, for the same reason, to protect water. Mountains are, um, they attract water, they capture water. Mauna Kea sits on five aquifers, and the major aquifer that it sits on feeds the majority of the island. So um, when you have a telescope on a mountain, they have mirror washing um, conditions. The 30-meter telescope will have two tanks underground, each 5,000-gallon tanks, one for human wastewater and one for chemical wastewater from the washing of the mirrors. Now, 5,000 gallons might not sound like much, but I think it's equivalent to 17 million tons. It's, you know, it's one of those perception, um, those tricks. You use the right numbers to sound okay. Exactly. A gallon sounds like something you put in the refrigerator, like a gallon of milk. So 5,000 gallons sounds innocuous compared to 17 tons. So there was a huge stand, um, and in 2015 and in 2019, every time they started to commence construction, there's been a huge stand of people. Um, There were 700 people, 900 people on Mauna Kea in 2015 with 32 arrests. And then in uh, 2019, there was a huge stand. There were thousands of people on the mountain, and they arrested 38 Kupuna. And these are elderly people in wheelchairs. Now the Kupuna had decided to stand on the front line to protect the mountain, which is sacred, and it's sacred because it carries the water. But they had chosen to stand on the front line so that their descendants would not get arrested. The young people would not get arrested. So the the state officers came in and they arrested the Kupuna and they pushed them in their wheelchairs. Um, they zip-tied their wrists as they were walking with their walkers. It was uh, it was horrific, and we were all standing on the sides with tears running down our cheeks, watching our beloved kupuna, and even though I'm not Kanaka Maoli, I see them as my aunties and my uncles, seeing them be arrested and put in the paddy wagons. Um, after they left, there was a line of uh, women who stood on the front line, and there were men who sat behind them, and the women were the next um, line of protection. And at that point, the state stopped. But they did have tear gas. They did have sound cannons like they have at uh, stand at they had at Standing Rock. And they got their cues from um, crowd control at Standing Rock. We got our cues from nonviolent direct action. Uh, people who came to train us how to engage in nonviolent direct action. And we were able to stave off um, the, the, the state at that point in 2019, and it's still at a stalemate. There's nothing going on. So, so I want to make a comment and ask you a question. The comment is, what if this happened in Ukraine, right? The, the evil Russians arresting all of these people in wheelchairs. It would be over the media Everywhere, all over the world. Right. Now, we talked about uh, Mauna Kea at the time. I had, uh, I think, three of the elder ladies 
who were participating and they uh, joined us to talk about that. But I realized, well, we didn't see these pictures. This is the first time I hear about that. And I don't know what has happened since. Yeah. So tell us. Yes, um, there, at the time it went all over the media. And that's what the in Hawaii probably, in, but yeah, not here. <laughs> yeah, not perhaps like in Wisconsin. You know, it, it'll. I think it was limited. Like some people in Poland, some people in Norway, and some people in Japan saw it. It was all over social media. Yeah, it was on social media, but yeah, not but on not the news. Not on the news <laughs> in the same kind of way, which is partly because the United States has an investment in Hawaii as a tourist destination, and they don't want to ruin that image. Um, which is precisely why the kupuna wanted to be on the front lines. They wanted people to know what the state of Hawaii does to criminalize Kanaka Maoli elders. Um, so definitely I feel like that was a, a large part of the problem. And with, you know, what's happening in Ukraine, it feels like to talk about abundance in this era, uh, what ha what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in the occupied Palestinian territories, To talk about abundance feels like um, something like a, a kind of facetious thing, but really to talk about abundance is to insist upon life and to show that despite what's happening with the contamination of the waters, Kanaka Maoli are working to restore a fish pond next to Pearl Harbor, which is, has been considered a Superfund site by the EPA. And so as Kanaka Maoli are uh, looking towards the restoration of abundance, I, what I wanted to get across in my book is that even, um, say, a 2% increase Celsius in global temperatures will cause the melting of glaciers, the acidification of the ocean, the extinction of species, that restorative changes have similar ripple effects that are exponential across the world. And I think, uh, I think his name is Michael Mombio, who has a great TEDx talk on... Um, George, 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 Mombio. George yeah. Mombio, you're the right. The wonderful right. Um, writer, yes. journalist. Yes, and yeah. I was so inspired by his discussion of, you know, the return of the wolves to Yosemite, 12, uh, 13 wolves or something, and then it brought back so much of the um, ecological systems into health and it changed the course of the rivers and how um, whales are important to the sequestration of carbon um, and the health of plankton, which produces our oxygen. So you see similar things happening in Hawaii at restoration projects. And so I wanted people to recognize that climate change is not necessarily apocalyptic. And that what it can mean is the demise of capitalist systems of abundance, I'm oh, sorry, capitalist economies of scarcity, and it's making way for indigenous economies of abundance. And that's really an important aspect of this book because when you talk to indigenous restoration um, people, they will talk about climate change as just one other change that they've had to face since settler colonialism since um, the genocide of their people. And so they argue that they approach these things with an abundant mindedness. They take stock of what they are grateful for, their families, their children, the land that is still there. And they work in that way to bring back abundance, 
rather than working from a deficit mindedness that all these things were taken from them and that they are powerless. No, they talk about approaching these problems through an abundant minded understanding that solutions have to be intergenerational. So, you know, I, I love um, your book because um, it's, not only does it offer uh, information and analysis, which are so important, and, you know, already I've heard from you some things that I hadn't known, even though I keep an eye. <laughs> um, but it also uh, offers a new way of thinking, which I think is always, just generally, if someone comes to you with um, something that you haven't thought about before that's so valuable, but also in the context of what you're talking about, of climate change and what we see as the deterioration of our planet. Until I read your book, it didn't occur to me to look at um, climate change and what it's bringing with it in a positive way. Now, I'm not saying that you say it is a positive thing, but um, you talk about how, and you started talking about that, and, and I would like you to discuss it some more, how a capitalist society, capitalist economy is all about scarcity because it's all about people always need to want more and yes. to feel like they need more. Yes. And so you have to create scarcity. Yes. And of course, because the capitalists themselves uh, work on greed and they want more and more and more and they get more and more and more by um, things like um, taking lands from, um, from, from the people that they occupy. So... So, so that's the capitalist system, but then the indigenous people, and not just in Hawaii, is um, of abundance by way of sharing, of everybody is included in what the land gives, what the water gives, what the sky gives. So, uh, you know, it's, it's very comforting to me to read that and to start thinking that way because a lot of time I feel desperate. Like, okay, we're continuing and continuing and we're trying and we're trying, but we're not succeeding because the capitalist system doesn't allow us to succeed. So um, now that I've said all, all of that, please say what you have to say. <laughs> That's a really beautiful summary of the argument, you know, and I think that we often feel so paralyzed by the, 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 the constant barrage of facts that we are, you know, reaching the point of no return. And my 10-year-old, when my son was 10, he told me he won't have any children because he can't envision a future for them. So for me, the work became one of how do we envision a future, a planetary future, so that, you know, we can keep working towards something that we believe in. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, people say capitalism is about, doesn't it, doesn't it create an illusion of abundance? And I says, that's exactly what it is. It's an imaginary plenitude. It's kind of a Lacanian phrase for the promise of satisfying all of your needs and, and, sa and prov providing you with a sense of wholeness. Um, and it's not sustainable. 
unlike ancestral abundance. So when you look at the ways that capitalism is set up, it has to create new markets in order to sustain itself. And a perfect example would be like the iPhone. The iPhone is a, it's a perpetual market, a perpetually expanding market, because every year you have to get, or people believe that they have to get the newest model. And so um, that's how capitalism creates markets to sustain itself. It creates the sense of need, a sense of lack. Um, now, indigenous systems are organized around, uh, they're not organized around markets, they're organized around the production of food. And that is creates a different spatiality uh, where they see the ways the continuities of everything from uh, the mountains down to the outer edges of the reef um, the food systems that grow along the waterways but they are also conscious of the stars and the importance of understanding the names of the stars and we think about Elon Musk and uh. his Starlink program uh, there is a kind of pollution of the stratosphere as well so uh, Kanakamali were very conscious about the importance of the stratosphere and as well as the very deepest parts of the ocean where other corporate capitalists are mining uh, seabeds, right? So um, they stand for that protection, that expansive interconnection of these lifeways. And so, you know, and that's something that's hopeful. That's something uh, colonial, decolonial joy is something that Kanakamali emphasized what we pass on to our children about the way we stand. So Pua Case, who's one of the leaders on Mauna Kea, says that it is a privilege and an honor to stand for Mauna Kea. And what we pass on to our children is laughter and joy, the joy of standing in solidarity with other people. Um, and she asks, she says this wonderful thing about um, who I stand with and what I stand for is more important than who I stand against. And I think that is the sustaining way that protectors see themselves not as protesters uh, who are against a telescope or who are against uh, pipelines, but protectors of water. And that's why there are these, um, as I say, there's a scalar fallacy that change has to come from above that it has to be uh, involve states or corporate capital, that they have to change their ways. What we're actually seeing is change coming from below where localized restoration projects are creating networks that are not just networks in Hawaii, but networks internationally, trans-indigenous networks for the protection of water. And they're sharing strategies and they're sharing... Um, the same kinds of things that uh, you see the settler states sharing. You see indigenous people sharing um, strategies and um, techniques and um, ancestral knowledges that are so important to the survival of, of their communities. So yeah, I want to write against that scalar fallacy as well because a lot of people say, well, what can a fish pond do? Well, it's not just a fish pond, right? Because uh, my interview with Hiile Cavello, who you know runs the fish pond, is being read in Norway and in Aotearoa, in Tokyo, and in London. Um, that's, those are all the places where um, I've given talks, and I'm so happy that I had the chance to foreground their voices in this book. It was not my writing of the book, but 
that really makes the book. It's really the interviews with the people who are on the front lines of climate change, indigenous peoples who are on the front lines. And they're the ones who are getting arrested. And why is it that they're the ones doing the most crucial work and getting arrested? You know, that's where we as settlers can step in. Yeah, the most crucial work for everything, for everyone. Yes. Yeah, my guest is Candace Fujikana, professor of English at the University of Hawaii. And uh, we're talking about what's going on in Hawaii and also about her book, Mapping Advance. Uh, I don't know why I'm having such <laughs> a hard uh, <laughs> mapping abundance for a planetary future. That should be very, very easy for me. Actually, um, and I should add that um, this show was recorded yesterday on Thursday because today on Friday, Candace is meeting with students before she um, gives her um, keynote and address at a, a symposium that's happening right here at UW-Madison, Living the Land, Global and Local Transformation. And um, so what you're saying, I mean, I have so many, uh, everything that you say brings 15 other questions, so I'm trying to figure out which one to ask. But um, I think um, another one that is part of the thinking that you bring in this book, and again, you mentioned it partially, is um, that, well, you told us earlier how the PFAS contamination is spreading through the aquifer. But you also note that uh, things like restoring a fish pond also spreads because, of course, the fish pond is connected to all other water on Earth. And so if 15 fish ponds are restored to health and beauty and wonder, it makes a difference everywhere. Yes, it does. It does. And it's a lot of it is also epistemologically, like how we see the world. Uh, epistemically, what is what what information is valued? You know, and ancestral knowledges often come up against STEM sciences, and it's simply a, it's a an, an indigenous science. You know, and there are so many people writing about indigenous science, but it doesn't get recognized as a science because, oftentimes, quote unquote, native informants are not considered scientists. Um, but you're right. Uh, there's a there's a Kahlo farmer who's a seventh generation Kahlo farmer, and he says a Kahlo farmer has to be a meteorologist, a geologist, a geographer, um, a literature specialist, uh, a chanter, uh, and has to have all of these different forms of knowledge in order to plant Kahlo. Uh, and he says we planted several different varieties in one patch in order to that that's the biodiversity that we employed because we knew that if the winds came or the floods came we would always have color that would survive so they were already preparing for climate change you know they've always been preparing and you know they're very practical and the three words they use is to assess adapt and to activate and mm. i think that that is um, way more than um, when you use the word adapt, people tend to think it's a resignation to present conditions. 
but rather it's working with the elements in present conditions rather than working against the elements. Um, and for another example would be sea level rise in Hawaii. So we are seeing the effect of king tides. So there have been times where hotels in Waikiki have had their, you know, their parking structures and lobbies flooded with these uh, rising sea levels. And so the first kind of the quickest, most expedient kind of response is let's build a seawall. But seawalls are not sustainable and they actually intensify erosion at the end of the seawall. So they're worse for any kind of coastline. And uh, actually Obama, pr uh, former President Obama has a complex in Waimanalo where they built a seawall to protect it. And mm. it was hugely controversial in Waimanalo. Um, now, the difference between that approach and how Kanakamali would approach it, they built fish ponds, not as impermeable walls, but as stone walls that would are porous. And the water would absorb the shock of the wave, but would allow water in so that it wouldn't redirect waves further down the shore. So that's an example of how Kanakamali had very... Um, you know, they worked with the elements and they have a pr practice called Kilo. And Kilo is the practice of keen intergenerational observation of the functions of the different elements. And so they would watch the wave action and they would try to figure out how best to move or work with ocean currents. Another sh fish pond that they would uh, build was a rolling fish pond which would roll the rocks would roll in with the currents and then the rocks would roll out with the currents and I just huh. love the idea of a moving wall that works with the ocean currents so they did incredibly beautiful and brilliant kind of um, architectural design and, uh, and and yet at the same time when we have um say like the the one of the biggest problems we've had in Hawaii is the Army Corps of Engineers. Well, what they do is they take science and engineering that they use on the continent and they import it and try to directly use it in Hawaii without first observing the differences in conditions. And that has actually been extremely detrimental to us. They've concretize stream beds to prevent flooding but when you concretize the stream bed you also prevent the reabsorption of rainfall into the aquifer or, or the, the water from the stream into the aquifers you prevent the nutrients from that soil being swept down to the estuaries which are the nurseries for the baby fish so there are so many ways in which um, stem sciences like that have been detrimental but what we have in Hawaii now that's very important is we have a lot of Kanaka Maoli scientists coming through the university. And so they bring together the best of ancestral knowledges and STEM sciences, um, and they bring them together in ways that understand the, the, uh, the particularities of the uh, material conditions in Hawaii. Yeah, it makes me think. Um, I'm a gardener, oh, um, nice. and I have a friend who is an entomologist, and um, 
we talk a lot about that because he's just an entomologist, right? I'm a gardener. So I'm a citizen entomologist, so to speak, but I'm also a citizen biologist and a soil scientist yeah. and right. rain scientist. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that I know just because I've been gardening for many, many years. But I'm thinking if I had behind me the knowledge of a hundred generations, yeah. uh, and it reminds me there's a gardening show on another um a station here, which I listen to as much as I can. And I remember several years ago, um, he had, the host had several entomologists, a couple entomologists, and several people called and said, I'm seeing this and that. And they were like, no, you can't see that. It, 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 they don't, they're not here in Wisconsin. And they said it a couple, three times. And then finally I called and said, we have climate change. So therefore, we probably have new insects. So stop telling people they didn't see what they saw. And and I could kind of hear how, even though, of course, they knew there's climate change and they knew that with that come new insects, they didn't, um, they didn't digest it, right? They were still stuck in that old way. And so, again, to to have this uh, combination of, you know, Western science, which knows a lot of things, and indigenous science, that can really get us somewhere. Yeah. And uh, you're talking about, um, I love that, that um, terminology here, decolonizing the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this kind of decolonization. Right. Um, so that's, uh, it's kind of a term that uh, Macarena Gomez Barres talks about in her book, um, The Extraction Zone. And we're all looking at the ways, well, first of all, Anthropocene. Uh, it's not all of man that's creating this uh, error. It's certain people, a certain class of people. It's really a corporate kind of uh, action. So, um, and it also send, tends to focus on human action rather than giving equal weight to the response of the natural world. As you're saying, the return of the return of species that never used to be in certain places. Like, why has the right whale returned to the Atlantic? Um, things like that. Uh, and we're also seeing things in Hawaii that are different and what they show us. Um, like the coral, coral is actually developing this really beautiful lavender color, which is new. And it's actually a response to the intensification of UV rays. So this is something you would see in corals in other places. They never saw this uh, particular um, change in the coral uh, on this island where my friend has a fish pond. And she says she's never seen it in 20 years, but now it's here. There are definitely these changes that are taking place because of climate change. So to decolonize the Anthropocene is also to look at uh, what's causing the problem, right? What is, we see the indicators in the natural world and we can actually track them to uh, corporate or militarized changes. So in Kaneohe Bay, or it's called Kavaha o Kamano, in Hawaiian, it means the mouth of the shark. And it's very beautiful. It reminds us that the reef system in Kaneohe Bay is shaped like the teeth of a shark's mouth. 
and that's why we are protected by uh, from tsunamis and that's so if the more you know the less afraid of the world that you have to be but i started seeing these little things flying around at the beach park and they look like little shrimp chips you know which are i don't know if you've ever seen shrimp chips in Mm -hmm. a chinese restaurant i'm like what are these and a friend of mine who works at the fish pond she says that's bubble algae so i looked it up and it turns out that bubble algae uh proliferates when there's some kind of a sewage spill so what had happened was anytime the military dumps sewage into um, kaneohe bay uh, we have this we have the indicator, which is the um, the shrimp chips, the bubble algae. They are actually a native form of algae, but they grow out of control when there's a sewage spill, and they tend to overtake the coral. So we see the indicator is, again, mokapu, which is the, um, the MCBH kaneohe, the military core, wait, MCB Military Corps Base Headquarters, I think that's what, or Military Corps Base Hawaii, that's what it is, and how they have affected the ecosystems um, in a way that exacerbate climate change effects. And so decolonizing the Anthropocene is identifying these kinds of, um, the, what are the indicators and what kinds of uh, crimes they're pointing to. Now, for Kanaka Maoli, they do have a system where they have identified 21 realms of land stewardship. 21 realms. They've broken the island into these horizontal realms, and they have defined different actions necessary in each realm. And what they also point to is that there are 400,000 akua, and the term akua has been popularly translated as God, but it really means elemental forms and natural processes. So decolonizing the Anthropocene is returning to native knowledge in this way so that we understand that Laka, who is the deity of Hula, is also the natural process of evapotranspiration. And the uh, Edith Kanaka Ole uh, foundation on Hawaii Island has identified these um, akua there and not not all of them you know it's a process you know they're recovering through chants and songs the names of the akua the natural processes they involve but they help to redirect our kilo and here's a really interesting story that comes from if we understand you know climate change uh, beyond a colonial anthropo anthropo um, kind of way yeah um so the cold waters represent kane the deity of cold waters that flow underground and kanaloa is the deep consciousness of the ocean and in many of the mo'olelo kane and kanaloa travel through the islands looking for water which is actually very uh it resonates so much more with us today where water is drying up being diverted by corporate um interests first for plantations now for housing subdivisions so actually what we see are plantations are water banking the water uh, in hopes that they can promote new um, housing for the military families so when kane and kanaloa come together um, that is actually what has prevented hurricanes from hitting hawaii so the cold waters of kane 
form a cold water perimeter around the islands. And when the hurricanes come barreling over the warm waters of the Pacific and they hit the cold waters of Kane, they, they veer north or they veer south. So the kind of critical settler cartography that I'm talking about, um, you know, you take the knowledge, you track the paths of uh, where the hurricanes have gone, and you can actually see this and you have proof through the mapping of the paths of the hurricanes that Kanaka Maoli knew that the importance of letting water flow to the ocean. So when I talk about the laws of the elements, one of them is the uninterrupted flow of water. And this shows us that corporate stream diversion for development projects, that that is actually counter to the laws of the elements. And in Hawaii, we argue that the laws of the elements supersede the laws of humans because they are based, again, on generations of, of observation. So that is how we're decolonizing the Anthropocene by re, uh, re kind of foregrounding indigenous knowledge ways, Kanaka Maoli knowledge ways, in order to track a path to health. Yeah, and of course, nature has to come before humans because we are part of nature. Yes. We, if if nature doesn't work, we are not gonna make it, right? So, right. but we are almost out of time. We have about um, three, four more minutes. And and one thing I also wanted to um, discuss with you is um, you identify as. Um, a Japanese settler ally. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from people who suffered a lot, the Jews, but I also come from Israel. Well, at age 14, I became a supporter of Palestine, of Palestinian independence, and have been ever since. Um, and so I guess I want to talk about being an ally, which is the current word. I actually, I don't think I like it very much because I don't think I'm an ally necessarily. I think I'm really part of the struggle. Um, not being indigenous or not being of the people who are um, oppressed doesn't mean that you're not part of the struggle. At least that's how mm. I see it. And, you know, maybe people would um, hit me on the head for saying that. But um, talk about how you see the role of a person who you are not native Hawaiian, but yeah. your book, I think, brings so much important stuff. Right. So um, how, how do you see your role? And, and what do you think, how should people be allies or supporters or part of the struggle or whatever. And by now we have about two minutes. Two minutes, okay. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry right. about no, that. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the terms, you know, terminology is always very complicated. But yeah. I basically identify as a settler. And that is for strategic reasons. So that I can go into testimony and I can say, as a settler, I support Kanaka Maoli. As a settler, I support Mauna Wakea. I do not think settlers should have a vision for the Mauna, as so many Japanese and Korean settlers have tried to pose. They've said uh, the mayor of Hawaii Island is Korean, and he says, I have a vision for Mauna Kea. And I'm like, it's not for us. That is not our kuleana. 
That is not our work. We don't have those generations of observation to make those kinds of claims. So I use the term settler, but I also emphasize to my students that we have to be proactive. We have our own kuleana, our responsibilities to the land that we occupy. So that responsibility means standing for the land, giving our breath, um, the breath, the life of our breath, either in chant or in testimony. So I teach them how to write testimony. I mm-hmm. said, you can write testimony uh, against, you know, the construction of the 30 meter telescope. I just presented testimony supporting um, a Kanakamali's right. So anyway, um, we need to do what we can to so that it's not just Kanakamali bearing the burden, but that we are helping to shoulder that burden. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Candace Fujikana, professor of English at the University of Hawaii. Uh, we were talking about the book, Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, Kanaka Maoli and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii. She's in town. So good to have you. Thank you so much, Candace. Thank I really you. This appreciate is so this great. You've been such a wonderful like interviewer. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate hearing that. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by, helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight.